and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. You ain't cheating, you ain't trying, as a well-known sports cliche. The idea, of course, is that we would do anything to win, even cheat a bit. And don't we sometimes admire the shrewdness that found the loophole to victory? And what if we use that ability for good? The story of shrewdness is the final part of Parabolic Mirrors. It's taught by lead teacher Randy Pope and covers Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Thank you for joining us today. Many of you know that I was a math major when I was in college, and uh, therefore, as we were raising our children, whenever we came to a a challenge for our children in math, I was the designated tutor. And so it was my job to help them figure out their math assignments. And on more than one occasion, I can remember hearing this response, Dad, I think that's the right answer, but that's not the way you get there. (laughs) Some of you had that experience? Uh, Math has changed now. That's the old stuff from what I understand, and now we do it a different way. And I say, well, I don't care how you get there. Just get to the answer, all right? And they say, no, no, no. It's frustrating. They have to know how do you get to that answer. Well, the same can be said about some of the parables, and particularly the one that I have chosen to use for this, the last of our series in Parabolic Mirrors. It's a story of a shrewd manager. It's found in Luke 16. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there, Luke 16. I'll give you a little foundation and understanding of what's going on. You have an owner, and there's a manager that works under this owner. We'll read the story later, but uh, to make it simple, the owner catches the manager with his hand in the cookie jar. He's been misappropriating funds. He has to be fired. And what the unrighteous manager, as he's often referred to, what the unrighteous manager does is very wrong. He cuts a deal with all the people that owed the owner money. And so he basically further stole from his owner, hoping to get himself postured correctly where these people would have favor on him when now he finds himself unemployed, unbeknownst to them. Well, the whole issue of the parable is that the storyline is God, Jesus speaking now as God, is saying, let's applaud the unrighteous manager for how shrewd he was, for how clever he was, for how ingenious he was to look after his future. There are many who write in their commentaries that certainly God would never, ever applaud doing something unrighteous. Therefore, he's actually a righteous manager, and here's how you get there. And they twist and twist and twist until finally you can make this unrighteous man a very righteous man by what he did. That's not the point of the teaching at all. One commentator put it like this. To applaud a dishonest manager for his cleverness is different from applauding a clever manager for his dishonesty. Uh, Maybe a a true story will help you understand how we're approaching this. A father 
shares the story that his son called him late at night. And actually, it wasn't his son. That's not true. It was actually his son's girlfriend who calls him in the middle of the night. Now, it's maybe 11, 11.30, 12, but the father was asleep. It awakens him, and he hears the voice of this girl who, unlike anything he's ever heard from her, she is beside herself hysterical, just crying and screaming, and he can't get her quiet enough to understand what's the problem, what's going on. And, and in the midst of all of the, the breathing and crying and so forth, she says, it, it's your son. He's been in a wreck, a horrible automobile wreck. The father immediately said, I'm on my way. Where are you? And it was not very far from where they lived. And so he said, I'm on my way. And she said, no, 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 you can't come. At that moment, he shares that he knew that his son must be dead. With that, the father said, I'm on my way anyway. You can't stop me. I'm coming. And then she said to him, which now sealed it 100% in his mind, that his son was dead, said, I think before you come, you better talk to the paramedic. And his heart just dropped. And then, as he hears on the phone, April Fool's, Dad, gotcha. Now, the question to the father was this. What did you say? What did you say? Honest story, he said. That was good. I'm going to kill you. But I have to admit, that was a pretty good one. But horrible what he did. But what an amazing creativity, imagination. I mean, for an April Fool's, do you know a better one than that one? Well, the point is you can praise someone for the cleverness of their sick act, right? But you're not praising the sick act. You're just saying, I got to admit, you're a pretty clever, pretty ingenious, pretty creative person to come up with that one. That's what's happening in this parable. Jesus is not saying, way to go, unrighteous. You stole, and that's good that you stole. He's saying, no, 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 you stole in a very ingenious way. And what I'm doing is I'm praising you for your ingenuity, your cleverness, but all for a reason, and that's to make one central point. Now, important for you to understand this. Every parable has been given to make one central teaching. It's what we call in theological study hermeneutics. When I was in graduate school of theology, we would study hermeneutics. Hermeneutics were principles of interpretation. And so there's a principle. What if something is said in the old and it precedes the Mosaic law. How do you interpret that long term? What if it's part of the Mosaic law? Here's how you would interpret it. How about something that's given in the Old Testament and it's not renewed in the New Testament? How do you deal with that? And then there's one for parables that says there is only one central teaching, one and one only. 
And it is quite acceptable and appropriate to give up on some of the detail, even in its accuracy, to do a better job of making the one central teaching. So I'd like for us to look at our text together. If you, again, you have your Bibles, Luke 16, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 7 to begin with. Luke 16, beginning in verse 1. Now he, Jesus, was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting for your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to him, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50, suggesting he's going to forgive the balance. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, this really begins to make sense when you come to the next verse, because the next verse is really the, the bottom line teaching. Verse 8 says, and his master praised the unrighteous manager. Why? Because he had acted shrewdly. Why does he do that? He's going to make a very important point. For the sons of this age, non-Christians, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light, which refers to Christians. We complete it with verses 9 through 13. It goes like this. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. And that would be basically monies and riches. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. For he who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So what Jesus is going to do through this parable is to teach us several things. And I'm going to suggest four challenges that he's given to his followers through this parable, both then and now for all of us. If you have your outlines, you're welcome to follow. Number one. Jesus challenges his followers to resourceful zeal, to zeal. What he's saying is simply this. Many, many Christians are showing less zeal for their eternal goals in life than the non-Christian world for their very temporal goals 
of life. Watch the lost world and their pursuit of just take success. I'm telling you, there are those of this world who have no interest in spiritual truth. And I'll tell you, they are so desirous to make it in life successful. They're getting up early in the morning, earlier than they would ever think they could get up. As a youngster coming up, oh, I just have to sleep. I have to have my sleep. Not now. For some reason, they can go without sleep because they're going to get up and charge hard from minute one. They're going to stay late at the office. They're going to neglect some very important things in their lives, including their health their family, but they say, I'm going for this success and it takes it, whatever it takes, I will give it. They will take vacations and cut them short, say, I won't go on this vacation. I'm going to miss this. Family, you go on. I've got to be attending to this. And they will work and work. They will study. Oh, I'm telling you, they'll read all the journals. They'll keep up with the stock market. They'll make sure they know this. They understand that. They're not going to be caught without understanding the world of their business that leads them to success. And so he says, just check them out. Or check out the world when it comes to the whole idea of, of, of just pleasure. The type of money that the world will invest in their club dues to make sure that they're at the best of the place, that they have the nicest car, that they've got a wonderful home, maybe even a backup, a second home, or maybe even more. I mean, they will invest and invest and invest. Vacations, extravagant. It just goes on and on. And they're saying, look, I want to enjoy the world I live in. I've got to make a huge investment to enjoy it. And the teaching is saying, Christian, watch the difference between sometimes them and us. Think about disappointments. Think about how the world will embrace disappointments, setbacks financially, get up and keep running again. They have a, they have a, a person to wrong them in their place of business, and, and they fight back, and they come back, and they, they resolve more than ever, going to make it work this time. And we'll compare now to the Christian community. And what he's saying is, you know, there are many that have a spiritual life and eternity awaiting them, and they don't pursue that part of their life as strongly as the world is pursuing their dreams and their ambitions and their hopes. Wow. I used to uh, live as a child. I lived on the country club of uh, our city. Uh, we weren't members of that country club, but, but we lived right on the golf course. And so what I realized was that uh, there were some buddies making some pretty good money during the summer by just caddying. Now, I had no interest in golf whatsoever, never played golf. But I realized all you got to do is strap a bag to your back and walk and, you know, hand them the clubs and you get a pretty good, pretty good fee. So I said, well, I'm going to do that. And so I did that for the whole summer and Day after day, we'd carry bags. And at the end of the summer, I made a very, very smart decision. I said, I will never, ever play golf. <laughs> and the reason was just by observation, this was my conclusion. I have yet to see somebody happier at the end of their golf round than before. <laughs> Think about it. They're always, they're always miserable at the end. Well, if I, if I only, mm, oh, I'm so frustrated, what happened? And, 
And I say, and they're going to come out here and they're going to do it again. Why don't they learn? This is a pattern. I've done it all summer. It's true of everybody, and nobody gets happier afterwards, so let's just not do it. You know, I don't, I don't understand. Now, I'm one of the stupid ones. I don't understand, but I do. But the point is, the world, huh, they say, I don't care. I'm coming back. I'll fight it. I'll get better. I'll do it. I'm going to find a way to enjoy this. I'm going to do it. Setbacks don't seem to be a big deal. How many Christians I've heard, you don't go to church, why not? Well, I went to church one time, and they did so-and-so. I don't go to church anymore. Well, how about your pursuit of God? You know, God didn't do for me. I was, everything was going great, and then bingo, something happened, and this bad thing happened in my life. I said, man, if he's not going to treat me better now, that's, that's it. Yeah. The spiritual folks, look at their spiritual pursuits. How many Christians... Say, I can't get up in time to spend time studying about the faith that I hold. I, you know, as far as getting the training to be able to be effective in sharing my faith with others, man, that is a costly thing. I don't want to spend that kind of time, you know. And, and the story just goes, that's what Jesus is saying. He's just saying, hey, followers, followers, take notice. And, and know what I long from you is the same kind of resourceful zeal that even you, perhaps, are giving now to the temporal world. Place that here in the eternal side. And you outlive them. You outwork them. You do it all better. Because you got something more important to run after. So number one, he's just challenging zeal. Compare the zeal to the sons of this world versus the sons of light, okay? Number two, Jesus challenges his followers to realism, to realism. Look at verse 3 of chapter 16. The manager said to him, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. And probably when he says I'm not strong enough to dig, it's probably a way of saying I'm lazy. And when he says I'm ashamed to beg, he's saying I'm prideful. And what he's simply saying, it's no more than that. He's just saying, hey, look at the world. Look how often they're realistic about where they are compared to the Christian why wouldn't we be as realistic? Many of you heard the story of my youngest when he was, he was the younger brother syndrome of, of Luke at 15 where he was the one that was out and straying and so forth and so on. And I'll never forget when he comes to me and he says, he says, Dad, you need to be praying for me. Why? Well, because I'm doing some very bad things. What are they? He tells me they are very bad things. He says, you need to pray for me because I'm in a bad spot. It's not good. I know where it's going. I know where it leads. I know what's going to happen if I keep following this. I love this way of life, but I know where it heads. I know about it. The realism. I had to sit there and say, boy, I'm thankful for the realism. What if that same child had come to me and said, oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine, which is what I hear from so many that I meet with. And I have an opportunity to ask them, how are you doing spiritually? You know what? I'm doing pretty good. I am. I say, I am so glad to hear that. And then I wonder... Are they really doing well? 
The sons of light are not known to be very realistic, so I'll do a little prodding and a little question here. That I say, well, tell me uh, about your time with the Lord. How's it been? Well, you know, that's been a real area. I don't really do too much in that. That's been a struggle. Oh, really? Uh, how about your, your life in, in ministry as a Christian? What's God using you to do? Where are you applying your gifts? Where's God using you right now? Well, that's kind of been an area that's been real strong in the last several years. Oh, Really? Well, now, are you are being used in people's lives that are, that are out there in the world that are hurting or needing the Lord? What, well, no, that's not been an... And I said, then for crying out loud, why don't you say, hey, I'm not doing too good. I need help. But the Christian world has so much, oh, I'm, I'm doing fine. Because I'm not doing really, really, really bad stuff. What Jesus is saying is to his children, to those he loves, he says, hey, children, children, be real. Just admit that fame is a bubble. Quit being so unrealistic to think if you get more of it, you're going to be a lot happier. Just come, let's admit that money is hollow, that money's not going to do it for you. Just come on, be real. Just kind of admit it. Just for it. Just say money does not count. That excess comfort invites stagnation why don't you just say it even though it's a struggle just at least say hey i know the truth don't just keep telling yourself the same lie just be real admit it and so secondly he's just saying i challenge you my children you be real be as real as the world is realistic okay number three Jesus challenges his followers to foresight. He's asking them, okay, I want you to be long-term thinking. You see, he knows that every one of us are going to shortly, it won't be long, be discharged of our stewardship responsibilities on this earth. And then we're going to give an account before the Lord. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. I know what I shall do says the manager, so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And of course, you know where it goes from there. What he's doing is he's planning for tomorrow. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He says, hey, Christians, followers, you that follow me, I want you to do this. I want you to think more about tomorrow than today. It's, it's what's called delayed gratification. I just learned this week of a study that was made that's just been completed over 30 years. You know what they did? Young people, listen to this one. They took a group of young people, very young, youth, children, and they said, we're going to give you an option. You can have one marshmallow right now, or you can opt to have none now, but you can have two a little later. You choose. Some of them chose the one now. Some of them chose two later. They tracked those two groups for 30 years to watch what happened. And in every area of life, it was so consistent. The kids that said, I'll take, I'll take the one now, didn't seem to make it. 
in area after area of their life. They didn't make the one that said, I'll hold off, I'll get the two later. To watch the success in life and how healthy and this, that, and the other. Marriages, it included their family, their marriages, everything. Those that could say, I will delay my gratification for that which is the best, even though it comes later. They're the ones that were the winners. That's all Jesus is saying. I remember when I was in college, I began to believe that with all my heart. I said, you know, this idea of, of preparing for the future is so much better. And I came across a quote I don't even know who said it. It didn't have a name at the bottom when I wrote it. But I made a little placard that I put on the foot, the footboard of my, of my bed in college, knowing that the first thing I was going to do would be sit up in bed, and when I did, that's where I'd be looking. And it would remind me every single day what I wanted to be reminded of. And the simple statement was this. You are becoming today what you will be for all eternity. And that used to just resonate with me saying, you know what, I want to be careful what I do today because I would much rather be better off in the long haul than the short haul. I came to faith that way. My thinking was this. I just assumed that if you become a Christian, you're going to be one miserable human. That's just what I assumed. You can't do these things. You must do these things. You've got to go to church all the time. You know what? But I said, as I came to know Jesus, I said, you know what? I realize this is not going to be a, a real enjoyable endeavor, but I'd rather live a miserable life for 70, 80, 90 years, whatever I may be given, and then have the delight of eternity forever. Now, I was wrong in my thinking in the sense that this is going to be a miserable existence, that I'm not, no, I didn't understand joy. I didn't understand God's blessing and favor and acceptance. I didn't understand that well. But the thought of just saying, hey, isn't that the way somebody should think if they're going to believe in an eternity? And so once you come into eternity on this earth, you understand that you have eternal life. Why wouldn't a person say, oh, man, I'll, I'll take this sacrifice now. I'll give this up now if it means that I can have this later. Oh, of course. Makes all the sense in the world. Then I came across... Later in college, I came across a man whose biography greatly impacted me. It was, a, it was not an autobiography. It was a story of his life, though, that his uh, wife, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote. His name Jim Elliot. Many of you know his story. And Jim Elliot had been martyred just a number of years before I came across this story. Uh, he was one that was apparently so handsome. He was so athletic. Uh, he was so intelligent. Beyond all of his peers, he seemed to arise in all areas. He was just a uniquely gifted person. And they thought he could be this, he could be that, he could go to school and get this and that. And he's going through college, and he says, I'm going to be a missionary. And they say, a missionary? Where are you going to be a missionary? He says, God's put on my heart the Alca Indians in Ecuador, in the deepest, darkest jungles of Ecuador. And his friend said, Jim, you have so much to offer these are cannibals. They're some of the last man-eating tribes. They've never been exposed to anybody but themselves. They will probably kill anybody with whom they come into contact. He said, I don't care. That's where I've got to go. And he gave his life to him. And somebody challenged him one day and said, Jim, you're giving up too much. And his response was, a man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. I heard that. I said, that one's going to stick with me forever. 
How many hundreds of times I've reminded myself, a man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Young people, take that one to the bank. You carry it with you for your lifetime. You remember, you're not a fool to give it up because you got something better coming. So foresight. Number four is just faithfulness. It's going to challenge them to faithfulness. Luke 16, 10 through 12. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, that's all of your riches and abilities and gifts and everything, who will entrust you with the true riches, that is, eternal riches? If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another, that is what God has given to you, who will give you that which is your own in eternity that now we are to be given as a rewards and all that follow? I learned years ago, I used to work with singles. Before I came to Atlanta uh, for perimeter, I, I was working among, in a city with singles. And uh, these were young singles. And I tried to get to understand the young single. And I began to realize that every person has what I call a lead domino. And everybody knows the, the story of the lead domino. You put a, a, a whole line of dominoes, turn them any way you want to, put them close enough together, and if you hit the first one, the lead domino, all the others will just fall. And so I said, well, what we got to do is find the lead domino in each person's life. And I began to realize that most all people have the same lead domino. But I found two categories, singles and those that were married. And the single, particularly the younger single, their lead domino was giving up the right to marriage and to obey God on whom they would marry. That if I could see one of the singles deal and grapple with that one in their heart, that's why the million-dollar mate became such a, a very important story for me. If you're familiar with that little book that I've written, it, it became so important to me because that was the lead domino. And a person better surrender that area. But if they did surrender and say, God, if you want me single, I'll be single for life. But God, if you do want me married, I will not marry anybody but somebody that is the appropriate person to partner spiritually together with me. And so I'd see, I'd see Guys and, and, and the girls come to the point that they'd give that up and I'd watch the rest of their life just be surrendered in a big way. I found out that once you're married, that's not the issue anymore. Now it's money. And I understand that's why Jesus talked over and over and over about money. Because he's saying, here's your lead domino. If I can get you to deal with that one, you're going to be in pretty good shape. The story is told of by G. Campbell Morgan, the doctor, great Dr. Morgan, greatest expositor of Scripture during his lifetime. Just everybody just, wow, the great G. Campbell Morgan. Well, he was on a speaking assignment in a church, and he was staying at a family's home in that church. And he tells the story as he awakens the next morning, he goes to breakfast to find the family, a fine Christian family, and they're having their devotional time as a family. And so Dr. Morgan sits in and enjoys it, and, and the father is talking about missionary endeavor, and he ends his time praying, and he prays for missionaries. When he gets through praying, his little 10-year-old son 
responds by saying, Dad, I love the way that you pray for missionaries. Well, that's not bad to get such a compliment from your son in the presence of one of the great spiritual leaders of, of all time. And so, obviously, the father was a bit thankful and maybe a little bit proud. Who knows? And he looked at his son. He said, well, thank you, son. That means the world to me. And then the son followed by saying, and you know, Dad, if I had half your money, I would answer all your prayers. So I'm having lunch with a dear friend of mine. Here's a man who's a real steward. He's a steward of his time and his ministry and his business, but he and I are having lunch. And as sometimes, not always or even often, but sometimes I'll, I'll ask the, the waiter or waitress when they deliver the food. I'll say, is there anything that we can pray for you about? We're about to pray for our food, giving thanks, and we're not going to ask you to have to pray with us, but we'd love to offer anything if you have a request. And this lady was waiting on us, and she seemed to be touched by the very offer, and she said, oh, thank you, thank you. I would appreciate it so much. My car payment. I need to, I need to make a car payment coming up, and if you just pray that I'll be able to make it this month. Okay, and so I prayed for that. We ate our meal, and when it came to getting the check, my friend said, oh, let me grab it. He picks up the check, and I happened to note, and he wasn't trying to let me see it, but I happened to know, watch what he did for a, uh, a tip. And uh, I thought he'd made a mistake. And so I challenged because it was a few hundred dollars in the tip. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa did, did you realize? And his response was, he said, you know, God's already answered her prayer. I know that. I have the means. We just asked for it. Let's answer it. That's how God will do it. I thought, wow. You know, God's just saying, why don't we be faithful? Just be faithful. It is the true barometer of faithfulness, our use of monies. And that's why he deals with that one, even in this parable. Luke 16, 13, the last text, reads like this. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You ever heard about the monkey trap? I'm sure you have. The way they can catch a monkey, they put a trap and they put a size of the hand of that monkey, whatever it would be. They put something inside the monkey wants. They go, it's the end. You know the story. They grab it and they can't get the hand out with a clenched fist. They can't get it out. And they'll stay there until they're caught. All they'd have to do is let go and they're out. And all the Lord is saying in this parable is, don't be the monkey. Don't be the monkey. That's what we are. And we grab hold of the temporal and we hang on and we can't get loose to get to the eternal. He said, just let go. Well, we've taken a long stare into our last parabolic mirror. What did you see when you looked? Were you pleased with what you found? Or did you find yourself saying, oh, I lack so much? Now, here's the question. Why did Jesus give us a parable like this? Do you think when he gave it, he said, you know what I want to do? There's going to be a church in 2013. There's going to be a pastor who's going to use this text. And I hope what he does is he makes all of my people feel guilty. Do you think that's what he was thinking? No. Did he want it to be taught as he meant it and as he said it? Yes. 
Will it make people sometimes feel guilty? I hope so, because it's done that to me. I looked in the parabolic mirror a lot more this week than you have because I had to prepare this message. And I look at all four and I say, woefully short. You're falling woefully short. So why does he want us to know that? I'll tell you, it's not that we will just try harder and get closer to his ideal. Let's just work harder, folks. Get out there. Come on. You realize how bad you are. Let's let's be good now. Let's go do it. No, that's not what he's saying. He wants us to see the difference so that we might then come to the conclusion that there's only one thing that we have to have and the one thing we must have, and that is we've got to have Jesus to close the gap. And the reality that what he did on the cross did close the gap. It closed it fully. Our acceptance is full because of what he did. Even though we see ourselves so far, he's made up the balance. But at the same time, as we understand what he's done to make up the balance, there's something that just propels us toward the very place that he wants us to be and that we want to be. So last week I ended the parable saying, what's the answer? We said the answer is love. Love Jesus. You start loving Jesus, you'll give up your other love. If you love something more outside the trap, you'll give up what's in the trap. And the hand will come out. But you can't just sit there and say, I'm going to work harder to get my hand out of the trap. I will get it out. Somehow I will get it out. For the glory of God, I'll get it out. No. He says, you got to find something you love more. And we said it was Jesus. But you know what I didn't answer last week? I said, we'll go to the cross, yes. See what Jesus has done, yes. But I thought, you know, I left you hanging a little short. Because God is not just one person of the Trinity. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you know the gospel, as we say the good news? It's not just what Jesus did for us. It's what the Father has done for us. And it's also also what the Holy Spirit has done for us. And I close by simply saying this. If you want to fall more in love with Jesus, what I say last week? If Jesus is lovable, you spend more time with him. Just spend more time with him, and you'll fall in love with him. But what I didn't tell you is what are some ways you can spend time with him? And I'm just going to highlight one. You know what it is? Theology. Believe it or not, you study theology. What? Do you know what the word means? Theus God The study of God, not just the Son, not just the Father, not just the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have a course here that I'm not urging you all to take the course. You'll be ready for it when you're ready. When you are ready, you should take it. But it's called Theological Foundations for Leaders. How many of you have taken that course here? Wow. I bet some of you will agree with one of the elders in our church years ago that took that course. I don't know if it was 10 weeks, 13 weeks, whatever it was. A lot of study, a lot of hard work, studying the hard issues of God. And when he got through it, he came to me and he said, Randy, I've fallen more in love with Jesus by going through this course than anything I've ever done. Why? Because he got to know God. You know, some of us know God, and all we know is God's good, and God's in heaven, and God does good stuff, and so forth. And then we hear things about God that doesn't make sense to us, and we say, I don't want to to go there. And I know this, that 
That's where I was. And I heard that God would choose us and that he would call us. I believe that I called God. I didn't have good theology. My love for God was very little. And then I went through some tears, literally crying over it, hurting over it, not understanding how, until I broke through and I saw the beauty of God's love. And now my story to people over and over is this. You know when I really, really deeply fell in love? When I understood God's electing call on my life. People know of Jesus. Oh, Jesus is good. Lived a great life. He had some great teachings. He had some great... No, 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 let me... He went to the cross as a perfect holy God. Well, I'm sure he did it because he wanted me and he wanted people like me. Yes, but let me tell you, no deserving whatsoever. None. Holy Spirit. Don't even hear people talk about the Holy Spirit today. That God has given us a spirit to empower us so that we don't have to just try to pull the hand out. But he empowers us to let go so we can pull it out. Theology. Christian, you're not going to fall in love enough to let, let loose out of the monkey trap until you pursue God deeper than just a little devotional reading for four or five minutes in the morning, a quick prayer as you drive to work, a little bit of Christian activity, and say, wonder why I'm not getting there. Going to have to go after God, study him, get to know him, fall more in love with him. And next thing you know, you'll look in the parabolic mirror and you'll still find a big gap, but you'll understand, wow, look what's happened. I'm coming closer. That's the goodness of the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow our hearts now and we say thank you for giving us the truth. Thanks for the truth of who you are, the Father, Lord Jesus, for you, the Son, and Holy Spirit, what you do as our spirit that indwells us. We pray now as we come to the table that we're going to see you a little clearer, a little better. Thank you. Receive us here that are seeking after you and want to know you for the first time. Give us a heart that opens to you right now. We want to be yours. We come to your table in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick word about the table as we take it. You know, I don't want you to think that there's going to be a mystical thing that takes place that if I just eat and drink something in this place, then something good is going to happen to me. That is not true. As mystical as this may be, the mystery is surrounded around truth. What this is designed to do is to remind us of the truth that mystically will change us. Do you follow? It will change us. And so to the degree that we hold this and reflect on what does it mean that he was my life, that he lived a perfect life, that his life had to be broken, that he had to die as we take the drink, and we realize this blood, his death, is the reason that I can have life. Those are the things that you think about and think about what does this mean to me? What are the implications? And you remember that death. Let this be the reminder. Do this in remembrance of me. Let this be a reminder. And watch what happens as the truth comes across you and begins to change you. Mystically, it does, but it's based on the truth. If you're a follower of Christ, you're invited to the table. It will be handed out in different ways in the different venues. 
But know this, you are invited to the table. If one, if you're a true follower, and that you have marked that following coming under the authority of a true church. It means like you're in love, but you're not just dating, you've gotten married. You've come under the authority of the church. And so if that be the case, it doesn't have to be this church, you're welcome to the table. Depending upon where you are in this auditorium, we have a stacked cup format. The lower cup has the bread. Take it as you're prepared and ready. The, the cup at the top with the drink, we'll take that as we close in just a couple of minutes. So I hope you have a refreshing time at the table, that you enjoy being with him even now. Think on the truth and watch what happens. The Lord said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.